Welcome to Nash DevCast. It's a podcast about software engineering in the Nashville developer community. I'm Jason Orndorff. I'm Corey Elliott. I'm Renu Dacharya. I'm Lisa French. And we're produced by Clark Buckner and Chuck Bryant of Relationary Marketing. Hey, this is Clark. Chuck's not here. And we're here to speak with Scott Clausing about working with junior developers and professional development. This is the Nash, Nash Dance Podcast. Nash. So, Scott, if you were going to start over, what, like, what would your advice to younger Scott be? Making friends is probably one of the first things I would encourage people to do. I went probably five years before I met anyone else who did any sort of programming for money. I was working in a family business and had my head down for four years and then came out of that and did, you know, taking contract gigs. I was working remotely. It was completely, kind of completely isolated from a community. I had no idea what my market value was. I never actually really even thought about it. And then I came to my first user group in Nashville when I moved to Tennessee, which was at that point the Adobe user group, just the Adobe user group um, at Dealer Skins way back in the day. And I met Andy Matthews and just a, a few other people, Ben Stuckey. And yeah, there's like a core group of people there that we all kind of grew up for a few years together, went to conferences together. And that was like a really great period of growth where we just fed off of each other, got jobs. And yeah, it, it was all about relationships as much as it was anything else. I think I would start there. The other, the other piece of advice I think I would give my future self is just learn how to talk the talk. Right. I mean, your skills will catch up. They will. Right? So uh, one thing I really encourage people to do is to watch Google Tech Talks, watch people on YouTube programming and listen to them talk, learn how to speak, learn how to use the words, you know, how to learn how to use them correctly. You can project a level of competence that's far beyond what you actually have. Um, <laughs> and that's actually really valuable, right? Like on, software development is sort of inherently entrepreneurial and there's a sales aspect to it, right? You have to sell yourself just beyond your abilities and then make up for it. And you do that every day in software development, every day. Everyone else is, so, I mean, that's the way I always thought. Yep. I, think, I think at this point I've oversold myself enough that I'm, I'm, I'm set for life. There you go. <laughs> You've got like a debt now. That's right, yeah. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be paying that. So what would, what would you tell? my career. What would you tell baby Jorndorf? <laughs> I, 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 I don't. I don't tamper with the past. It's my policy. Ooh, good no answer. No time travel. <laughs> no, things turned out pretty great. Yeah, I would say I lucked out too. I mean, I think that's probably pretty common. I mean, we we had all the advantages, right? Like we had the advantage of a period of financial stability and access to education. Yep. At the and you know and enough time and inclination to take care of, to take advantage of that and. Then, the rest is history. And maybe a slower pace of change in the field, maybe? I wonder about that. Like, is it, everybody seems to think the pace of change is much greater now. But I, like, I never, I don't, I, don't, I don't feel like I have the perspective to say if that's really true or not. There's a greater opportunity now for specialization, which is really cool, than I think there was 10 years ago, where a web developer was kind of inherently full stack. Mm -hmm. I mean, at least in my experience. It feels to me like the opposite, like, or at least go looking at job postings that, and, and like right now my title is front-end developer, but I'm doing a lot of full-stack stuff, and plus SEO and design, and 
trying to think what else, but I mean, just so many client communications, content, you know, wording. I especially thought that at a big corporation, it would be super like confined. That's what I was about to say. It seems like it would be. Um, I've never worked at such a big place, but, but no, I guess what you're saying is it's, but yeah, if you look at inherently entrepreneurial, like no matter where you go, you have to wear all the hats and do what looks there to be done. Yeah, and then and then with more of the front end kind of going on, or well, at least people think of front end JavaScript, and then you have Node now on the back end, and all the templating. Like it's it seems very blurry now. But yeah, if you go and look at job postings, it's super. I mean, and that could be that they're asking for the what's the term kitchen sink. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Actually, so you write you you've written job postings, right, Scott? Yes. Do you do you just ask for the kitchen sink? No, not at Emma. We really try not to. And if we do, it's an accident and you can point it out and we'll fix it. But we're looking for the right people that mm-hmm. have um, context for the, the work that we'd like to do. And we do tend to focus, you know, an individual either more on the back end or more on the front end because the, they're both so different and so complex, especially across the whole application here at Emma. Mm-hmm. It's really, it would really be impossible to find a person of, yeah, right. like a, that could work across our full stack without having been here for a year or two. So do you hire, uh, do you hire people with relatively little experience? Like, do you hire people right out of uh, software school? Have you done that? We have, yes. We have, uh, I think, three teammates who've come on board with, a little, with, with less experience than like, someone who you might bring on as sort of an experienced full stack engineer. Mm-hmm. So... A few years ago, John Wark and I had a conversation um, before the software school was, was started. And he and I were, were talking about um, the interview process. He asked me to, to help interview for the first couple of cohorts. And I said, one, one of the things. Incoming or outgoing? It, like it, it, candidates to. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, uh, candidates that were interested in, in being in Nashville Software School. I said, one of the things that's really important to me in that interview process, the selection process, is finding the people who are going to make it anyways, the people who we can accelerate and not enable. And I, I would say that that's really kind of that, the main characteristic that we look for in someone with less experience is someone who, if we don't develop them here and accelerate them through that process, we're gonna regret it. They're gonna go out and do that on their own. I think NSS has gotten, gotten like really focused on that. Yep. And they do a good job of it. Um, and I'm looking across the table at three people that were picked for that program that like all have this, I don't know, something, just drive. Yep. There was never any doubt. Like I know, and Renu in particular, I, she's, she's like awkward saying this when I know she's like right there, <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> but she's, she's like, when, she's got a lot of, so, okay, let me just tell the story. That's better. <laughs> So the first time I met Renu, uh, she was in NSS, and she actually had just, just finished um, and had applied to a couple of places, um, and she was really worried, like, like didn't, you know, didn't know if she was going to get callbacks from any place and so on, um, but she, like, described the interview process to us, and it was abundantly clear to everybody. She was just, you know, asked people to go out for coffee, and she was talking talking to a bunch of, you know, more experienced developers, and it was abundantly clear that she was going to get offers. Um, and so, I mean, it it's it's funny that like 
somehow through that self-doubt, like it, it, that John or whoever was doing the interviewing at NSS was able to pick out like that. This is somebody who's going to succeed. Yeah. And there's more to it than just aptitude. There's, um, there's character, right? Mm -hmm. We look for self-awareness. We look for, um, what do you mean by that? People who understand they know what they know what they don't know, right? They know where their limits are, and and they're willing to to put in some effort, but but ask for help, right? So there's not a, a pride there that's going to limit them from um, from learning from other people. That's um, really interesting, and I think I think that's really important when you're trying to pick people who will be like possible and pleasant to work with. Um, but I haven't heard anybody except people at Emma say that you know, like use that word for that self awareness. Is that, is that like is that Emma jargon or is it something that I hope we don't have any jargon caught on or well, I think I mean, it's I'm like not, a psych term. Like, yeah, yeah. I've definitely heard self awareness from other people. I just ha no. I mean, I just haven't heard it in in a in a hiring context like that. Is there a no. connotation there that I'm not aware of? I don't, that's kind of what I'm asking. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, but that's really what we mean when we say looking for self-awareness. People who have um, kind of that ability to do some introspection, to be able to, to look back and reflect and see where they are and understand where their limits are. Um, people who aren't going to make things up in, in, a, in an effort to, to kind of like get through something. We actually look for, I'm kind of giving away the, giving away the secret sauce here, right? <laughs> but like we really look for in an interview we, we try to put at least one or once or twice in an hour, um, try to get people into a situation where they have to say, I don't know in one way or another, not, maybe it doesn't have to be in those words. Um, it doesn't have to be that direct, but, but some ability to say, you know, I'm, I'm not there yet, or I'll get back to you or however they say that. So earlier we were talking about if, you know, if you've hired people with, with relatively little experience, right? New engineers, it sounds like you've got some scars, <laughs> It sounds like it's, I mean, I imagine that that's really hard. And I, I guess I have a confession to make that I've never worked with junior engineers in my career. But it seems like it's tougher than just mentoring somebody or like just, I mean, casual, like casual, like, um, uh, hey, how do you do this type mentoring relationships? Sure. So I feel like having a junior dev is kind of like having a plant. You have to make sure it gets some sunlight. You have to water it, maybe occasionally fertilize it, prune parts off of it. <laughs> you can't ignore it. You have to take care of your junior dev if, if you want it to flourish. You Otherwise, can't forget about it. You can't stick it in a closet, <laughs> just tell it to do the thing, and expect it to do the thing, but it doesn't really know what the thing is. And it's, it's got, I'm going to roll with you, it's got what it needs inside. You just have to, like give it those, those things it. to make those chemicals start working. Coax it out. So, Will, you remember uh, when we were talking about Stratasan the other day? I think I do. I mean, that's really one of the things that attracted me to work, really work with Brian over at Stratasan. Like, <laughs> that, team is, that team is great. Wonderful. Anybody would be smart to work there. Okay, do you remember now? Yeah! Right. That was episode two. That was, that was before they were sponsoring our show. So they're looking for a front-end developer that's proficient in React, Redux, and Webpack, and you know all the other JavaScript, JavaScripty bits that goes goes with that. So give them a call and tell them that you heard about the opportunity from from us. 
So what's the difference between humility as a developer and imposter syndrome? So I feel like humility is being able to admit that you don't know some things, but the ability to say when you're confident about others. And imposter syndrome is when you're like, oh my God, I don't know anything. I suck at (laughs) everything. And it's like patently untrue. You can't possibly suck at everything. Yeah, imposter syndrome is when it's paralyzing. But I feel like it's really hard to pick them apart at times. Like when you're in the middle of it? And there's also false humility too, right? People that are amazing that are like, oh, I'm not very good. When we all know you're amazing. So yeah, humble brag. So I wonder how much of the distinction between the two has to do with the environment that you're in. Where if you're in an environment where you can truly, you know, express your humility, show your flaws, um, ex- express your weaknesses, and, and there's gonna you're gonna be met with help. Um, you're gonna be met with uh, um, with empathy. Like that's that that environment can sort of cultivate that as well. Um, if you're in an environment where you have to kind of, you know, mitigate those things, hide your hide your flaws, um, there might be more of a tendency to. And the, the thing is, like every environment is that by default. Every environment is one where you tend to hide your flaws. That's like the default state of people, and when they mm-hmm. don't, when they don't know each other, especially, uh, like we were talking about with software school, and like you know, going into the bathroom and every stall is taken. That's <laughs> a, you know, that's that's just a result of like just kind of you know, naturally everybody fronts a little bit. And, yeah, yeah, I think it's like it's a whole different mindset like it that was something that I had to learn because in coming from a marketing background it's like if you don't have the answer like you just sell whatever you know you know you don't you don't admit to weakness and especially in the job interviewing context like all of those were drilled into my head that you you cover your basic questions and you know you're very prepared but with with uh, technology it's it's just so vast the variable, the the factors and things you could be asked about is, you know, the kind of problems you could encounter. And I don't know, like there's a certain authenticity there that's really important, especially, especially in, in the interview context, um, especially in the workplace. No, I, I agree. I'm just saying that it's, it was a totally different mindset to be, a, you know, to be able to say that in an interview and that it won't count against you. And also I think that when I come to the interview table, I'm also like wondering if there are factors that are already counting against me, you know, being a woman or things like that, that I have to kind of make up for. Are my male counterparts coming in more confidently? Are they not saying when they don't know something or able to throw in enough jargon or make something work? Whereas I might think about it, think about all I don't know, and then kind of shut down. But I still have kind of I feel like I'm in a better position to be able to just be more out with those things. Like if that's not the tone already, you know, I just, I'm going to keep saying, I don't know things. It might count points against me, but even if that's not the environment, I still do it. See, I don't want to end up in an environment where I can't have flaws because I'm a human and, and I'm inherently flawed. So I would much rather they chop me off at the get go because they want something perfect and I am flawed. And that way I don't end up somewhere where I'm abjectly miserable because I have to pretend to be perfect because I'm not very good at that. I would, I mean, I would too. I just feel like there's 
like you only get so many questions before people think that like you're a cert, you know. The interviewer can tell if they ask you a question and you know you're overselling the part that you know or that or or you are just making things up, right? So definitely people who overdo it are shooting themselves in the foot. I it would be really tricky. Like if if I didn't if I didn't know you, if I was interviewing you, because I I would definitely perceive that you're less confident, right? Um, and it would be hard to know what to make of that. I don't, yeah, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's like psychology studies about what people can, how they can react toward you just based on your body language and things like that. That they can make decisions about you before you even get to those things. I mean, it's something that I've worked on a lot, but I definitely had to work on it because, you know, just coming into this field from totally different, starting from scratch and then trying to interview three months later. I, I kind of want to go back to the make friends thing. Um, I mean, I, I think that at least in Nashville, the um, three or four positions I've worked for, people I've worked for, I don't think I've gone into an interview setting without having had at least something that looks like a, a personal relationship or an, or an out-of-workplace um, interaction first. Um, and I really, I love it when people like, you know, ask out to coffee or something before even applying you know, just an opportunity to kind of break the ice and get to know each other, really seek out each other's motivators, ambitions, uh, goals. I mean, it's just a way to, like, just to gut check that mutual fit. Um, it's a way for you to kind of, like, the, for the candidates to kind of interview the, the company. And it expresses a level of interest and initiative. It doesn't, it d- doesn't really require a ton of confidence because you're going into, you know, a public setting. and yeah. It's like going on a date. <laughs> so I feel like you should enjoy the interview process. I feel like... It's something that you can't take too personally, which is a really hard thing not to do. Let's see. I think it was 20, yeah, 2013 when uh, the company I was at, they had a merger and layoffs. So then I was, I was suddenly on the job market. And I ended up, I think it was like 40, 40 interviews or 40 companies. Wow. Yeah. I just had a lot of trouble. And this was after, you know, a year maybe a year and a half after being a developer. And I don't know, but that was really rough. But I got really good at interviewing. <laughs> and I was really bad at it before. I feel um, like it's something you have to not take personally because our community is so close-knit that you are absolutely, without a doubt, going to at some point in time come across the people who were like, you know what? Nope. And so you have to kind of I don't know, get over yourself and learn how to just be like, that's cool, we can still be friends. Much like dating. You're going to run into people throughout your career <laughs> that have noped you, right? And so you can't take it too personally because, you know, they've got their reasons. You've got, I mean, I noped people. I noped plenty of people. And I have been noped. And you just have to kind of go, hey, no hard feelings, but... It, you can get there, but it is hard because, I mean, when you invest, like, you go through three rounds of interviews, you maybe do a project that takes a day, you know, it can, and then you're like, what's wrong with me? You know, I know that, like, I mean, there's something there that was wrong, maybe, you know, but, yeah, I, I know what you're saying. Like, you definitely have to move on cause, and start applying for the next thing. Because maybe it was just a bum question. Maybe it was a bad day on your part. Maybe it was a bad day on their part. You can't. 
Yeah, there are so many factors at play. They could be having a bad day or, you know, just... Scott and I actually did mock interviews because I was so intimidated by the thought of interviewing and not knowing what to expect. You were so intimidated by it that you sought out I sought out the experience Without beforehand. any gain, absolutely. And Scott provided me with people that did not know me. And oh, that would come wow. in and ask me questions, and then he graded me and gave me like a little write up, and it was amazing. Yeah, it Scott was... takes men- th- this mentoring role extremely seriously. You should, you should see his his binders. Maybe we should talk <laughs> about like some of the the things that you do. Like that would be really helpful. Uh, um, like in in terms of advice for interviewing. Well, when a junior developer comes across your path, you're committed to them as a mentor. How do you help? get them ahead, whether it's at work or outside? What are some of the like exercises you do? I just try to help them in the ways that they want to be helped. Um, that's really it. So just, and it's the same thing we do in, in uh, one-on-ones with managers here at Emma. You just try and seek out other people's motivations, their roadblocks, um, the things that they want help with. That even, if, even if you can kind of see from a little bit of a higher level, maybe there's something that might be a little more forward-looking, the thing that's right in front of them at the moment, something you almost have to address first. And so, so I, Corey and I would just talk um, over McDonald's muffins. Sausage biscuit with strawberry jelly. There we go. That sounds so good right now. It's amazing. It's my jam. And try to understand what the what what that that mental block is, whether it is about interviewing, whether it's a technical thing, whether it's a you know a community thing. And just talk through those things. If you have to bring other people in, bring other people in. A lot of mentoring is making introductions to people who can answer questions better than you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's my favorite part. Yeah, it's like it's always so cool. One of the coolest things about being in the Nashville Dev community is just occasionally like being a yenta. It's, it's a just, technological it's yenta. Just, it's just big. It's just big enough that there are plenty of people who who are superstars that don't know each other. Um, yeah. And so you get to introduce people a lot. It's kind of great. I think when when Scott was mentoring me, we only talked about code once, I'm pretty sure, for the most part. Uh, we talked about the things that I didn't know about and didn't have another resource that I could trap in a room and grill like the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, so. Yeah. I pretty much came in and, and said, you know, how, how does office politics work? How, does, how do you ask yeah. for these things? What, what are acceptable ways you can do this? What are the boundaries? Because those were the things that I couldn't raise my hand in the middle of class at NSS and be like, how do you people? <laughs> <laughs> right. And it's uh, super important. Right. And, and, like, and whenever I go to NSS and, and talk, I, I give a technical talk, right? Because that's, that's what I, I don't people. Um, I, don't, I just don't. But, but all the questions are these questions. All the questions are like about offices and, and, and relationships between you know, software people and just other people in that kind of company and, and money and, <laughs> and all, all that. And uh, so What to expect when you're actually working. And we should write a book, What to Expect When You're Expecting to Become a Software. <laughs> <laughs> That, that'll That's sell. Not a <laughs> well, yep. I want to ask about professional development. Um, just in general, how do you even begin as an organization to tackle that? 
and what do you hear from employees? What do they actually want? And what do you think actually helps and what doesn't help? So that was only like nine or 10 questions. I'm sure you got all those in your head. You're gonna have to bring me back on track, but our overarching goal at Emma for the technology group is Emma as a career destination for the best tech talent. That doesn't mean the most experienced, but it does mean the best. And that, that distinction between this is a place where you can have a great job and this is a place where you can develop a career is, is, is real. At least it is in my mind. It's not a place where you come to have a you know, transactional employment. It's part of why one of the things that we look for in the interview process is that ability to start a conversation, that ability to, to, to teach and, and you know, have more than just a, a canned response on the other side. And we love it when people come in on personal recommendations. We love it when that's initiated from, from the other side by just, hey, can we have coffee, right? So that it, it kind of starts there. And in terms of the, the professional development arc, because I think one of the biggest questions we get all the time is, you know, what does it even mean to be a junior developer? Hmm. And we categorize, you know, junior engineer and senior engineer, maybe somewhat subjectively, but there are ways that we can get at this that feel a little bit more tangible. And we can talk about that if you want. But in in the, that junior mode, and we're, we're thinking about what to do with that language, but the, the less yeah. experienced developer right. is in learner mode, just are. And so we have an expectation that you're probably going to produce less and spend more time absorbing information from the things that the people around you are producing. And that there's a tipping point when you shift into you know, producing, it becomes more, more of an equal balance. Um, your production goes up, and you're spending less time absorbing, and other people begin to learn from you. Then that senior level tipping point is where it shifts even further, and your production uh, probably takes less time, but impacts more people, and that impacts them through like the breadth of impact that that code has in the system, but also the number of people who are learning from it. And that's, that's how we talk about sort of the, the career arc from junior to senior. And there's some tangible ways that we can get at that. One of them is, you think about, we might ask uh, before, a, before a review, you might say, if you were gonna pick two people in the organization to start a team with, we're gonna start a new team, who would you pick? And it's really interesting um, to look at who they might choose. Um, are they gonna surround themselves with people who are people who they're going to benefit from being able to, to, to learn from? Are they gonna surround themselves with people who are going to complement their skill sets in a way that together they're extremely productive? Are they gonna surround themselves with people that they can bring up? So that's, yeah, that's kind of what, what we look at there. Wait, but what does that tell you? What do you do with that? Well, it's subjective, right? But yeah. it's interesting. Um, it's because really interesting. You yeah, can just ask people whatever you want. Kind of like me right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, like I said, one of the things that we look for is the ability to do some, some basic introspection to look yeah. at yourself and, and understand where you are. And if you were going to build your ideal team, you know, thinking about that balance between productivity and career growth, who are the people you surround yourself with? It's just interesting. It's a good thing to talk about um, in a one-on-one -on -one with a manager. It's a signal. Yeah. That's a conversation starter, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be interested to hear what, what kind of things you have your juniors work on. We have our juniors work on the same things we have everyone else work on. Period. Just yep. And, and it's, uh, so there's not a distinction there. We, um, we don't try to carve out the easy stuff. 
Um, there's just no distinction. There's a difference in expectation for probably how long mm -hmm. something will take um, or how much of someone else's time they will take to accomplish it in order to get the information that they need. Um, but we don't, we don't like rank tickets by level of effort and only give junior people easy stuff. It, it just doesn't happen. We should, we should do picks. So I found out this, uh, this the, the book that I mentioned in episode one, I found out this week uh, that aphids can't take antibiotics because they die, because they're completely dependent on these bacteria that live inside them and can't live anywhere else that like produce these like insect vitamins that they can't get any other way. Do you know aphids can be born pregnant? What? What's an aphid? Wait, pregnant? They're, yeah, they're, they, they like live on roses and attack. They're little insects, tiny, it's tiny things. They're green, the wor green the flies. World. Yeah, so that's, that's my pick, aphids. I don't know if this is a pick or not. Right now, they, the, so the Lesbian Sioux Tech organization is doing the, um, they, they've created uh, a coding scholarship. And when they had the summit um, back in, I think, February, um, they, named it at, they named it after Edie Windsor, who um, was the, I think plaintiff is the word, in the, in the DOMA case that made, um, you know, that made, it opened up federal benefits to same-sex couples. Um, but she was a programmer at IBM. She, I think she had the first um, uh, personal computer from the company in, the, in New York City or something like that. Just a total badass. Like, she talked to us um, about, like, the code that she worked on and things like that, like stuff that you wouldn't normally hear in her interviews because they're asking about, you know, her relationship with her wife. Um, but anyway... Um, they, they named this coding scholarship after her, and they're raising money right now. Um, I think they're somewhere at 60K, um, but they're going for 100K, and if they meet that, I think it's Dev Boot Camp is going to match it. So um, it's a great opportunity. So cool. they, they already did a round of these, and um, every, every woman that attended the program was a queer woman of color. So um, you want diversity in tech, this is a great way. Plus, there's all kinds of cool T-shirts at the different levels, you know, and prizes and things like that. So, if that if that's what gets you, but yeah, that's really cool. It'd be cool if we can get the like the text of the talk. If, that, if yeah, it it's I think it's on video. I mean, oh, I definitely great. like iPhoned it the whole time, but there's a more professional video. Yeah, it's it's amazing. It like, sounds really cool. Yeah. I like totally like my, I went up to meet her and just was like shaking and like, you know, she's like a icon in several different levels. Yeah. All right. I have a pick. Um, so I'm kind of sort of getting into woodworking a little bit, like not to the point where I'll ever actually be a woodworker, but um, I'm kind of obsessed with torsion boxes right now. And the torsion box is like the same kind of uh, structure that like an airplane wing is, is built out of. It's... Um, it's essentially two skins with a, a structure in place. It's a grid structure that causes the whole thing to resist torsion. And I've been looking all over for the, it's based on the principle of an I-beam, but essentially in a box form. Um, and I've been looking all over for like, what's the math, right? What's the math behind torsion boxes? And uh, there's this book, More Woodworkers Essential Facts, Formulas, and Shortcuts. That's like the only place that I've been able to find torsion box math. And there you go. That's my pick. The internets didn't have it for you? I can't. I <laughs> literally can't find it. The Googles, nothing. All right, Corey. 
What do I do? I killed plants. <laughs> Maybe that could be my pick. My pick was this week I discovered you, if you sprout a seed indoors, you have to do something called hardening it. Or when you plop it in the earth, it will look pathetic and wilty and it will die. What does hardening it mean? Hardening it means that you have to take it out to visit the outdoors so that it can become hardier and not be pathetic and wilty when you take it outside. You have to like take it out for a couple of hours and like work it up to living outdoors. That's, that's good advice for, for new programmers as well and, and, and NSS students. And if you don't Go know outside. that, then the other alternative is that you take your butt to Home Depot and you buy already sprouted plants and put them in the ground and no one will know <laughs> that you didn't know how to harden them. <laughs> Hey, this is Rodney. And Rodney. <laughs> <laughs> the Nash Dev Breakfast is at Fido on Wednesday, May 25th at 7 a.m. If you can get up that early, Fido Breakfast is worth it. The Geek Girl Dinner is at Eventbrite that evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Also this week, there's Lean Coffee, a PHP Hot Chicken Lunch, Cocoa Heads, The Rails Beginners Meetup, Pie Nash, Nashville UX, and all the details for these will be at nashdevcast.com in our show notes. Thanks for listening to Nash Dev. Uh, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and SoundCloud at Nash Devcast. This episode of Nash Devcast was brought to you by Stratasan. This was edited for your listening pleasure by Rodney Norris and Clark Buckner of Relationary Marketing. <laughs> Can you hear that? Can you hear the smile? Here's the smile, guys. Ew. <laughs> That's a creepy smile. <laughs>